they were politically very switched on. They were affectionate. They loved their wives and families. They were not without humour. They were brave. They were revolutionaries. I think that's one of the things one's got to get into their into one's head. 150 years before the French cut off the head of their king, and more than two centuries before the Russians got deposed the Tsar, the English cut off their king's head and for 11 years had a republic. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm your host. Now today I'm speaking with Robert Harris, who you heard at the top there. He's written a fantastic new novel, Act of Oblivion. The story starts in 1660, just at the restoration of King Charles II, as England emerges from Oliver Cromwell's protectorate, which we heard about recently in my chat with Miranda Mallins. Robert takes as his heroes two Puritan regicides, men responsible for the execution of Charles I, and so you heard Robert pointing out just how extraordinary the Roundheads were. Throughout the novel, we get flashbacks to the Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, and the trial of Charles I. All the while, the two regicides are pursued to America by Charles II's agents, determined to bring them to justice as vengeance for the killing of the king. It's a fantastic book, as one has come to expect from Harris, so I do hope you enjoy our chat. Now, one thing I've wanted to mention. You might be wondering, why is there no advertising on this pod? Well, dear listener, I've had offers, but I am determined not to succumb so as to make the listening experience for you as enjoyable as possible. I myself am an avid listener to podcasts, and so when ads appear, I immediately fast forward. On an unrelated matter, if you feel like writing a nice review, and thank you to those who have already, then don't be shy, and please do subscribe if you can, I'd be hugely grateful. And so without further ado, I'll hand you over to me and Robert Harris. Robert Harris, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Thanks so much for for joining me. It's a pleasure to join you. Um, Well, we're here to talk about your new novel, Act of Oblivion, which uh, I've read. It's it's brilliant as ever. Uh, I've raced through it. And it's not a short novel either, actually. Um, But I wanted to, 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 to first off ask you, it's this is a sort of you've not really gone into this uh, 17th century before it's a bit of a departure and i wondered is that because the period itself which is a hugely um sort of tumultuous uh, century for britain um or was it the characters themselves your two your two main heroes wally and goth was it their story that attracted you well, I was attracted because I saw, I think, on Twitter, just a line saying the greatest manhunt of the 17th century. It's just that, that the concept of the two things together uh, caught my interest. And, of course, it turned out to be the hunt for the uh, men who'd uh, signed King Charles I's death warrant or had sat as judges at his trial. Um, and um, I read a bit about it and I thought, wouldn't it be great to invent the manhunter? The man who, because we don't know who it was, but someone must have organised this. So I sort of invented 
a subcommittee of the Privy Council and a clerk to the subcommittee and so on. So that was my starting point to create the, the man on their tail and why he would be so determined. And then I looked at the regicides and it was obvious to me that the two most interesting for my purposes would be Wally and Goff. They were father-in-law and son-in-law. Um, the old man, uh, Wally, who was 60, um, was Cromwell's cousin, had been and was close to him. Um, and they fled to America um, and were hunted across America for years. And I just thought that this would be a great story. It was as simple as that. I have always been interested in the English Civil War, um, but been deterred from writing a novel about it simply because of its complexity, really. Yes, well, it, the novel stretches across many years, um, but the the two the two characters themselves, Wally and Goff, they are they're they're very different actually. Um, and and Goff, the younger, the son-in-law, is is a little bit more earnest. Um, Wally Wally is is seems to have have a, a sense of humour actually. <laughs> Goff is less less humorous. Um, but, how close was that to, to, to the two men in themselves? Well, I, obviously, I researched and read everything that is available about them. And indeed, I found out new facts about them, as far as, far as I can see, that people didn't know before. For, for instance, the precise date of uh, Goff's birth, which is um, about seven year, years after most estimates. So he was younger. He was only he was 20 years younger than his father-in-law. And uh, Wally's uh, wife, the, her actual real name, um, I think I'm the first probably to track that down. Um, but there are letters extant um, from them to Thurlow, um, Oliver Cromwell's uh, uh, sec chief secretary, that give us some insight into their characters. And there are letters uh, between uh, Goff, the son-in-law, and his wife back in England. And these do give you a flavour of their character. And it is true that Wally was, uh, I think, a far more confident man. He was from a background of the gentry, uh, although they'd fallen on hard times. He comes across as confident. He was considered a bit of a dandy. He was also uh, definitely a political moderate. For instance, he uh, urged uh, moderation on Cromwell uh, when he set off on his expedition to Ireland and mercifully neither of the two men went on that expedition. Um, and Goff we know from the Putney debates um, was a fiery um, kind of almost a fifth monarchist man believed that Christ would return to earth in 1666 and he was a political extremist and very much against any negotiations with the king. And curiously, uh, this hasn't really been touched on by other by writers about the regicides. Wally, for about nine months, was the jailer, the king's jailer. When, when he was in the army's hands, um, he was in charge of him. So and, and became he seems to become quite close to Charles, as well as being close to Cromwell. So, you know, there were lots of straws that I could use to build the bricks of the characters. It's a. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, that that brief. Well, as you say, nine months or so, where where he's the the jailer of Charles. I, I I've increasingly more I I learn about this period have more sympathy for Charles, and he comes comes across as rather symp a sympathetic figure in your in your book. Uh, I wondered if you felt the same. Well, 
until I really got into writing the novel, I hadn't appreciated um, how um, clever he had been at the trial um, and how, you know, the regicides when they were caught and they were hanged, drawn and quartered almost to a man, I think, died very bravely, died in the certainty of that, that they were right. And Charles I uh, on the scaffold died very bravely in the certainty that he was right as well. And I found that the mirror image of the two, um, th th that inner certainty was interesting. Um, and I, I, I did have some sympathy for him. I mean, I started the book, I've always regarded myself rather lazily, assumed that I would be a, a roundhead. But having <laughs> spent a lot of time in the company of these Puritan colonels, I decided that quite probably I'm one of nature's cavaliers, <laughs> actually. Um, it was a technically very difficult, it's technically easier, frankly, to write about King Charles I than it is to write about two Puritan colonels uh, on the run. I, there were many times when I thought, what on earth have I done? What sort of task have I set myself here to make these figures comprehensible and sympathetic to a reader? Because they, their idea of sort of leisure time is, is reading the Bible, isn't it? I, which, you know, a great read, but um, it's not Netflix. So uh, they didn't have that in those days. In sort of permanent reading of the Bible was providing a lot of fulfillment for them. For yes, they, they were. Um, exactly. I mean, I steeped myself during the research in the writings and speeches of Oliver Cromwell and and all the others. And uh, every other sentence uh, is a biblical quotation, practically. And uh, this is sort of, you know, if you're if you want to be honest about what these people were like this is this is the total kind of motivation and explanation for the world around them and everything um having said that um you know let's look for the points of similarity they were politically very switched on they were affectionate they loved their wives and families they were not without humor they were brave they were revolutionaries. I think that's one of the things one's got to get into their into one's head. 150 years before the French cut off the head of their king, and more than two centuries before the Russians got deposed the Tsar, the English cut off their king's head and for 11 years had a republic. That's quite an extraordinary uh, thing. That was what these men were capable of. They weren't just sort of dreamy uh, kind of religious nutcases, as we might see them. So there were, again, there was more to build on about to make these figures substantial to a modern reader. One of the things that I decided quite early on was to call them Ned and Will, which I think they probably would have been called by their contemporaries. Um, that humanised them. Um, and in a way, the novel was a kind of, it's a kind of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid of Puritan, <laughs> and his Puritans on the run, pursued by this invented regicide hunter um, of mine called Richard Naylor. And uh, a chase story, you can't beat a chase story, really, in, for, for fiction. And uh, so the narrative spine of the book is a chase with flashbacks to the Civil War. Uh, uh, and I hope that, you know, this is a way of writing about the Civil War, which makes it accessible uh, for the general reader.
Yes, it's it's certainly worked for me because I'm not really a, a scholar of this period in any way. Um, interestingly, I was. It's funny. I was talking to a Catholic priest a couple of days ago who is a scholar of the period, and I was asking him about the religious aspect, which I think you you dealt with actually quite well in the in the book because you know you do you do um connect with these characters um but the the fact that in that in that period everyone was hugely it was a lot more religious than we are today um and but this priest was telling me that um it was quite a new um way of connecting with god in the period because you'd had the advent of the printing press recently and and translation of the Bible from Latin into another language. So you didn't need your priest and you just needed the Bible, which these two um, Goff and, and Wally have, they, they, they have their Bible and, and that's their connection into God. And, I, and, and it was, I think it's betrayed quite well in the novel. It's an interesting vision of, of a period that we're not really that familiar with. Yes. I think that um, it's, um it's a t- time of revolution i think the modern world is really being forged in these uh, decades in the mid 17th century um and that's right the puritans felt that um a man could have a relationship with god which was in essence uh, personal really that you you could do away with all this floppery and flummery of priests and vestments and stained glass windows and uh, uh, bishops uh, and the idea that the king was in charge ahead of the religion I mean just sweep that all aside and uh, just you know in a, in a modern way really uh, have have faith have a, a community forms itself to to worship God and um, this is radicalism uh, and of course it has a political dimension because you're attacking the established order and this obviously gels with the uh, entrepreneurial class who are often represented by puritanism and so hence this endless debate as as how much of the english civil war was religion and how much of it was uh, economic uh, and how much of it was politics you know uh, which which does make it very complex to write about because really there are at least three in this civil war there's the parliament there's the king and there's the army uh, which is very much um founded upon religion especially the cromwellian part of it uh so yeah no religion is absolutely central so you cannot escape it and this is one of the reasons why i think that um it's not a period that's covered particularly often in popular fiction uh or or in the in films or t- television series there are there's been a great many and very many very good recent books about the english civil war they've been coming out in the last year or two um but not very many novels have ever been written i think because the characters can be very hard for a modern reader to get get their head around mm. and and you mentioned the politics of things and i know you've you've said before that um politics is the drama of life now the Civil War, the uh, trial of the king, the execution, and then the interregnum, and then the restoration. I mean, it's so dramatic, and all in it's quite a short period. And that's I'm not I'm not even including the the, the uh, plague and the Great Fire of London, all within the space of 17 years. 
it's 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 uh well i guess the civil war is is um a lot further says so over over a lot longer but uh, but but you know a huge amount packed into a short period H- how dramatic i mean it, it almost writes itself i suppose in a way well in some to some degree yes and of course it's you really as you mentioned at the beginning the book is quite a long novel it's the second my second longest um after an officer and a spy um and I still have cut, cut out um, a lot, actually, or didn't or chose not to write it. Um, but I wanted to give um, both the the novel begins in 1660 with Wally and Goff arriving in New England. Um, and on the same day, more or less, actually, it's a historical fact, the death warrant was uncovered, was discovered in a country house in uh, Leicestershire. So these things happen more or less on the same day. And uh, from that point on, uh, you know, I run cut between the pursuer and the pursued. Um, But because Wally was himself um, Cromwell's cousin, and I think this has been underplayed, he was more or less the same age as Cromwell. They must have grown up together. They, to a degree, they went to Cambridge at the same time. They lived in London. within a few streets of one another for a time. And they, um, when Cromwell started building up what became the Ironsides, one of the first people he turned to to help him build it was his cousin. And he eventually rose to be um, commander of the cavalry and and very much really effectively in charge of Cromwell's personal security when he was protector and lived next door to the palace where Cromwell lived. So he provided me with a perfect uh, vantage point for the whole history of the period. And um, anyone who knows about that time knows that a lot of people like Ludlow, for instance, Hutchinson, they they wrote memoirs. Uh, And so this is almost the first period when you find that politicians or political actors are actually writing their story. So it's perfectly feasible, given that uh, Wally had years on his hands of just hiding in attics and barns that he might um, start to write his memoir. And that enabled me to um, tell the story, the, the most interesting parts of the story, which he would have witnessed. That is the um, founding of Cromwell's regiment, the, the battles, the, the he, he was in charge of the kings, looking after the king, as I say. Uh, and then we go on to uh, the trial and execution of the king. He was both the judge and the signature of the death warrant and so on. So, you know, I was able to interleave these two aspects of the story. Uh, and and I put, I, you know, the, not only, as you say, the drama of the execution, but I mean, um, Cromwell's uh, rough and ready habits with Parliament, I mean, are incredibly dramatic, where he shuts down Parliament and... Uh, tells them to clear off, locks the door, pockets the key and walks up to his house and throws it down in front of the assembled army officers. It's an incredibly dramatic scene. Why on earth there's a statue to Oliver Cromwell outside the House of Parliament, I do not know, as no one in history seems to have shut it down more often than he did. Yeah, it is is very funny that. Actually, I I was going to leave Cromwell to later, but we should talk about him because uh, I've always had a kind of strange fascination with Cromwell and I wondered what what your view of him was I I think I can um I I might be able to tell from what you just said but he 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 is a a hugely divisive figure but has a little has had a little bit of a 
a sort of um, uh, there's been a few revisionist histories of him recently. He's becoming coming over as a, a little less um, sort of on on the, on the kind of um, you know hugely. It, it, he he's becoming a little bit more sympathetic recently I've, in some histories. Well, he was a force of nature, and he was a great man, um, and uh, his achievement is uh, staggering to have gone from a moderately well-off farmer and kind of, um, as it were, backbench um, MP um, with, as far as we know, no military training whatsoever to found and lead what became probably the greatest army in the world and um, to completely destroy the professional soldiers on the other side. he was inspirational, um, uh, brilliant, um, and a curious mixture of qualities uh, of ruthlessness and violence and compassion and sentiment, um, and with a most marvellous way with language. The thing you can't, and you can never sort out with Cromwell, is how much of the religion is genuine, I think, almost all of it, but how much of it is also delusional or self-interest? Um, and that is, and how ambitious was he? I mean, I think there's little doubt when you look at it that he was extremely ambitious and saw that uh, uh, there was a route opening up to for him to take absolute power. And he obviously reveled in power. But one of, one of the reasons he was able to do it was because even his enemies grudgingly accepted that Cromwell was the biggest man in the country. Once the king was dead and his son was in exile, there was only Cromwell. And as long as Cromwell was on the scene, more or less, the show could hold together the Commonwealth. The moment, of course, he was removed, uh, then there wasn't anyone with his stature. Uh, so, um, you know, we I think we can debate endlessly because the evidence is inconclusive. He was a very secretive man, I think, in terms of what was going on in his head and what he was planning. So we can debate endlessly um, um, whether he was a good thing or a bad thing, to to use the cliche, but sure as hell, he was a thing, uh, one of the most remarkable men uh, uh, that this country's ever produced. Mm. Um, So um, one thing I wanted to ask was, the you've mentioned your research and and you've uncovered these um you know un, previously unknown facts which is extraordinary and, and you refer to that immediately in your author's note um i i i there were a few other uh, parts in the book that i was interested to know if if you if you'd researched for example full moons dates of full moons I'd imagine this. Is there an app for something like that, or or had you, you know, is this sort of how much research did you go into to find out about that? Well, I'm, you know, it's not an app, but there are um, sites on uh, uh, on the internet that give you, first of all, the days of the week. I find, I'm always interested because the days of the week, you know, you have a different, they have a different feel. So. Um, uh, you can find out uh, what the day of the week was under the old uh, calendar uh, that was still in force at the time. And you, uh, yes, you can find all the phases of the moon in the 17th century um, in New England. So I, I did, you know, there's a lot of 
the book takes place at night. You know, they can only get outside at night. They have to travel if they're trying to shift between house, hiding places at night. Full moons are important, a matter of life and death. So yeah, I wanted to get them right. Um, so I'm afraid it is nerdishly, that kind of thing is as accurate as I could make it. You know, I have to believe the thing is true before I can put it down. And if I, if I feel that, oh my God, that is what happened, or then I can sort of try to bring it alive better. And the, all the historical novels that I've done, it's that excitement of feeling, uh, my God, it might have been something like this, or it must have been something like this, whether it be in Roman times or, 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 or in the 17th century. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, the, the, um, the novel, are two uh, fugitives uh, um, hold out in America, which is, a new colony for uh i mean almost it's a new country for so many people um well actually not that many it's it, they're very they're actually population wise not that not that many there but it it's this extraordinary description that you've you've captured of america these new town boston and, and cambridge and new haven it, it's it must have been an extraordinary place for people who were, I guess they were fleeing religious persecution and, and so starting out afresh. But I wondered um, uh, in your research of, of America, how you um, how you found these, these are actually tiny settlements really, aren't they? Yes, they are. Um, only 100 or 200 people quite often. Um, and I, this is the part of the book which I found most interesting to write, actually, because this is a country just beginning to be born. Um, or the, or, I mean, we should say specifically, of course, it was a country that existed for a long time, thousands of years before with an indigenous population. But the uh, English have arrived in this area and they are creating an, a new a new England, literally. Um, and that is it's fascinating. First of all, one realizes just how important religion was. Um, you know, to land in the in these places, to trek 50, 100 miles inland, to brave all the elements, to to plant crops, build houses in the middle of nowhere, in the silence of these great virgin forests and so on. You could only do that if you believed you were doing God's work, which of course is very much what the um, roundheads did in the Civil War, the soldiers, they believed they were God's instruments. So right in the DNA of America, which exists to this day, is religious fundamentalism. Um, and that I found fascinating, all these um, Puritan settlements, and yes, they, were uh, founded by people fleeing um, religious persecution and they wanted to, to, to worship God in their own way. And, um, you know, you can still see anyone who goes to modern America now is one of the things that's most striking is the religious radio stations, for instance, or, or we see now in Roe v. Wade uh, or in Prohibition, you see the um, essence of a very, very strong religious streak uh, in America for all the variety of uh, races and religions that are there. Still, there is still this very strong element that you can trace back to those early uh, pioneers. I read um, um, uh, 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 Thomas Pynchon's novel, Mason and Dixon, set sort of a hundred years or so later. 
and and there's that other element in America which I guess is just brewing in 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 your novel of of there's this a kind of re, I don't know if it's rebelliousness but a a kind of wildness to to the people in America that that is certainly different to to England. Yeah, well, bear in mind that um, I mean when Wally and Goff got to uh, New Haven and they drilled the militia, which was designed to protect the town against the um, Native American threat. Um, they uh, and New Haven was the um, religious settlement, extreme even by Puritan standards. Um, that they said openly. Uh, Wally said, you know, with, with 200 such men as you, you know, we need have no fear of the King of England. Uh, he's recorded as saying that. And so here we are in 16, well, 1661, uh, more than a century before the American War of Independence. You have the first kind of whiff of uh, republicanism and separation from uh, the English state. Uh, so, you know, you know, the, the, the guys who cut off the king's head, their descendants are the people who settle in New England. And lo and behold, that strain runs through American uh, politics and American thinking, uh, the rugged individualism, uh, the kind of person that can can actually build a house and live in that sort of hostile environment. You know, all these things are trace elements that you can see in modern America. And that's, you know, I hadn't appreciated till I was writing the novel, the links between Cromwell, the parliamentary side and the Puritan revolution in England and America and the American revolution, but they are extremely strong. Mm. Um, now, one one other area that I think you write, you write, um, and, and really draw attention to quite well is is the um uh, very well is the is the the female aspect but childbirth death in childbirth um i mean even the voyage over from england to america which is what two two or three months uh, with heavily pregnant women on those uh, on those ships it's just the, the 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 suffering of of females then is 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 vividly portrayed actually and 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 it's something that i guess one doesn't initially appreciate you know in the in the wider scheme of the politics and the drama of of the of the period yes so many of the characters which i had i put in the book um were on their second wife and almost all of them the first wife had died in childbirth um and it must have been uh hellish in fact when they um are discussing um, the regicides, the um, possibility, the prospect of hanging, drawing and quartering. Um, the, the notion was that actually any ordinary woman probably had gone through equivalent pain uh, and, and, go, and goes through it every year practically. Uh, and a lot of them die at the end of it. So yes, um, Women are the, are the kind of heroes in a way. I mean, they help, they hold the families together uh, when the men are on the run. Um, and they are pragmatic and sensible. Uh, they don't have political power and obviously they're not soldiers, um, but they are, you know, really crucial. Uh, and there are a couple of very strong women in the book. And I liked that, the fact that that was realistic, that I wasn't, writing some kind of 
kick-ass, you know, 17th century maiden, or, you know, I hate that in, in, in contemporary fiction, that you've now got to make uh, the women all like men and, uh, you know, killing people and the rest of it. Uh, they were very formidable, but in, uh, in a different way and a more impressive way in some ways. Um, and now you did mention you've briefly mentioned Samuel Pepys in the novel, um, but he's he's he doesn't actually make an appearance. Um, were you reluctant to bring in such a sort of huge figure? Well, I think the only thing you can do really with these books is to bring in whatever is relevant and they would have encountered. I mean, Wally and Goff would not have encountered uh, Samuel Pepys. It's true that uh, the the guy who is hunting them, the clerk to the regicide committee, he might he would probably have known who Pepys was. And yes, I couldn't resist um, when the um, regicides were brought back. Three of them later on were brought captured in Holland and brought back. They were met by a barge, and um, I couldn't resist saying that Mr. Pepys had, uh, you know, the secretary of the navy board had sent the sent the barge to take them off the ship and take them to the tower, which I think is perfectly plausible. In fact, I'm not sure they didn't actually do it. At any rate, the incident is mentioned in his diaries. Um, so, yes, I mean, one of the things that you in historical fiction is you can only really use about one fact in 20 that you've uh, discovered. And by and large, one should avoid the um, one character observing to another look there's peeps he always seems to be writing (laughs) um, for god's sake you know we mustn't have that i do the book is sprinkled well in fact almost entirely peopled by um, real characters there's only Naylor, my regicide hunter is a fictional character almost everybody else clarendon cromwell um, the, the reverence in, in um, New England, all of them uh, did actually exist. Um, but I don't want to hang around too much. You know, um, the reader wants the story, really, rather than for me to just parade my notes. So uh, Wally and Goff, I, I mean, and certainly we won't um, discuss any spoilers, but Wally and Goff's um, time is... In, in you know as fugi- fugitives from um from Nela. I wondered and, and they weren't the only ones, obviously the regicides that that were um uh, abroad and, and trying to escape from uh the clutches of, of Charles the Second. I wondered how um because you do describe as you've mentioned, you describe some of the regicides, their executions, and they do go out as brave men. I wondered, you know, life on the run isn't hugely fun. I, wa- I wondered if any of them had any regrets. And obviously, you, you, you know, you, you've gone into their minds. So uh, it's interesting to see what you, you would think about that. You know, would they would it have been better for them to have returned to London, face the music and die? Well, I think that that was... Um... A source of debate. Yes, I mean, I think from the regicides who re- went on the run. I mean, we should perhaps explain that when, also gives the name of the book, that when uh, the king returned and Charles II returned, came to the throne in 1660, um, a kind of general amnesty for the civil war was introduced in Parliament uh, called the Act of Getting an Oblivion. Uh, with with one uh, exception, really, and that was for anyone who'd had a hand in the death of Charles I. And the, um, what, 30, 40, whatever it was, 
people who were still alive, 50 maybe, who had had some, who'd sat as judges, or in particular had signed a death warrant, they were marked down and they had to hand themselves in, uh, in the hope of justice and some, some mercy. And some of them did, poor fools, and they didn't get much mercy, actually. The best they could have hoped for, by and large, was life imprisonment. And life m meant life, and imprisonment was pretty grim. Um, but others went on the run, and um, there was a debate as to whether it was better, especially among those who were very, very strongly religious, whether it wasn't better to simply go to your martyr's death. Um, Harrison, General Harrison, one of the most uh, flamboyant uh, leaders of the parliamentary side in the Civil War, he just allowed himself to be taken and... Um, he, he died not merely bravely, but actually he threw a punch at the executioner when he was having his um, insides dragged out. I mean, you know, these these were tough people, but certainly some of them, it, you know, there was a speech from the scaffold by, I think, Colonel Jones um, saying um, better by far to be here now on the brink of meeting our maker in heaven than these, you know, people who've gone on the run. And uh, so I was able to put that into the novel. I think that Wally, what one knows of him, the pragmatic older father-in-law, uh, would would have thought better to try and live and fight another day. Goff, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he wasn't one of those who said, we've made a terrible mistake, we should never have come here, because their lives were miserable. Um, it's funny that a lot of the ideas and work on this novel came during lockdown. And because they lived lives of lockdown, essentially, they could not go out of doors. Um, uh, and we all know how that felt. Um, and they were they, they simply had to hide like Anne Frank in an attic um, for years at a time. Uh, so, you know, well, but I think that it, it is a question. It is questionable whether it would have been better to just sort of get it over with um, and what whether they had much of a life actually in America. Um, and then do you think Charles I, his execution, do you think that was healthy for um, for the country? And, and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm talking, you know, many years later, 100, 200 years later. Well, they came close, really breathtakingly close to a kind of 1688 settlement 40 odd years, 50 years beforehand. And... Um, but the fact of the matter is that Charles I was, uh, he regarded himself as free to be as duplicitous as he liked because he had God on his side, just as Cromwell and the rest thought that they had God on their side and that um, they would be forgiven uh, for whatever uh, corners they cut, uh, crimes they committed, because ultimately they were doing God's will. So it was impossible, really, to do a deal with Charles I. Uh, and I, I think that they were they were right to that extent that he had to be got rid of. Uh, whether uh, a trial was the right way, uh, I don't know, because, of course, uh, like many uh, uh, political leader, Charles I was able to use the trial for his own, as a platform for himself. And uh, he had the best of it. I mean, in the end, they had to try him in absentia because every time they brought him out, he would say, before we go any further, under what law am I being tried? And of course, they couldn't really answer this. Uh, and the, the, his behaviour at the trial and the fact that this became a pamphlet and was you know, read everywhere 
his, his arguments. And then the execution, when he was so supremely self-assured during it, were propaganda uh, victories for him. Uh, so um, there is a case that the, the, the army would have been far better to have just bumped him off whilst he was trying to escape, which he repeatedly did try to escape. And then um, maybe they could have done some sort of deal with, uh, if not Charles son, one of the other children. Um, but we'll never know. I think that by that time, Cromwell was determined to, uh, as he said, cut off the cut off uh, the king's head with the crown still upon it, i.e. to dispense with this figure who had, uh, as far as they were concerned, was an impediment um, both to peace and to the relationship between people and God. Uh, they wanted to get rid of the head of the church and the bishops. Uh, all in one fell swoop. Well, I mean, that is what I mean. That is the breathtaking thing. I think that people have often forget just how, what an extraordinary thing this was. So, w w I know you've mentioned um, earlier on. You mentioned your your sort of angling towards being a um, a cavalier rather than a roundhead. So, if you if you had to choose, which would it be? Well. Obviously, um, you know, I'm, I'm drawn to the to the radicalism of um, giving everyone their destiny, and I I would have I this is something we haven't mentioned the levelers, of course, and the, mm. and, the and the fight within the army for a universal franchise, um, which which Cromwell ruthlessly suppressed. Um, so and those ideas are just hugely revolutionary i mean uh, hundreds no. of years before incredible incredible so as a 21st century person of course um you know i find all those ideas very attractive what i don't find attractive and what i, I find alienating is the is the uh, puritanism of the army who which is remarkably similar in some respects, to ISIS or Al Qaeda, it's a kind of Protestant uh, Taliban smashing up uh, images, um, you know, destroying and desecrating things they don't believe in, forbidding, suppressing um, uh, music in, in services, uh, festivals, theatre, um, entertainment. Um, uh, that rigidity, uh, that ruthlessness, um, I find distinctly uh, unappealing. But I kind of accept what Carlyle wrote. I must be one of the very few people who, in recent years who's read Carlyle's life of uh, Cromwell. And he, he thinks that it was the one time in British history when the greatest people were in charge, when this was the most noble, the most extraordinary thought through experiment uh, uh, in, a, in a new form of life and way of living. Uh, and I, so I can see that. So when I say oh, I'm a cavalier, I suppose what I mean by that is, you know, I like a drink and a song and I'm going to the theatre uh, and I find this, this, this crazy kind of millennial um, God, will, you know, Christ will return in 1666. I, you know, uh, leaves me completely cold. I'm glad to hear it. Right. Well, well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. Um, I, 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 my final question is, are, are you remaining in this kind of period or a few hundred years either side or have you decided on your next uh, next novel?
I don't know what I'm going to do next. I have a couple of ideas. Um, but this was this was a quite a hard book to write, as you can probably imagine. Um, but no, I said I'm not going to do a sequel uh, <laughs> or a prequel. Um, I've I've always the glorious revolution. To, that's uh, it. That's a. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've always wanted to write about the English Civil War. It's fascinated me. And now I've, I hope I've found a way of doing it. And that, that will probably be it for me. Well, you certainly have. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic read. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Oliver. Good to talk to you. Now, as I have mentioned more than once to Robert and to you, I really do recommend this book. Links are in the show notes. If you're really committed, I put a link to Thomas Carlyle's book on Cromwell. So I'd be very impressed if you managed to read that. Coming up, I've got Ben McIntyre on Colditz, the prison of prisons during the Second World War. So I hope you can join me then. In the meantime, thank you and good night.